storytelling stories from the EGA Clubhouse. All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, Sharing Stories at the EGA Clubhouse. We are really thrilled today to have this person with us. Um, we have Morgan Fumi. Uh, Morgan is a longtime uh, entrepreneur uh, in localization. Uh, and so we're really thrilled to have you. Thanks, Morgan, for coming. Thank you, Chris. It's a real pleasure and such a wonderful uh, to see the growth of DGA come from nothing in just a, you know, in a year, how far you've brought it and the vision to see that this was really needed in the industry. So really great job on it. Yeah, thank you. Now, a lot of people don't know, where do we find you today? Uh, because it's not where people might think we find you. Uh, I'm in Florence, Italy at the moment. Um, we moved here for, for a year. Uh, I had grown up here. Uh, up and through, through high school, but I'd been gone for almost 30 years. So we wanted to come back and have our kids experience it. Um, and then one thing or the other, we liked it here. And then with COVID, we're like, well, maybe we should stay for a while. But I'm uh, eager to start traveling again. But it's a great place to live. Yeah, great. So, uh, so talk a little bit, Morgan, about your, your, your family actually has a long history in localization. Could you, could you kind of speak to that uh, just a little bit, you know, like what, how your family got into it? Sure. Um, it kind of happened um, haphazardly in the sense that my father, among other things, wanted to be a filmmaker uh, and um, made a film and then uh, started the Florence Film Festival. It was the only... Uh, outlet for independent American cinema in Italy. Most films, it was just too expensive to localize them and distribute them uh, because of you know traditional methods. Uh, even subtitles at the time was only laser engraved subtitles. So even if you could afford one, which was around five or six thousand dollars per print, um, you had to throw that print away once the, the film goes to a different country. So he had a problem about how to show these independent American films and thought, oh, why don't we have a way to show them without ruining the film print. So he basically developed and invented a system that he patented in 1982, which um, applied barcodes on the outer edge of a film print, which gave the synchronization um, and with a little scanner, like the ones that you see at the supermarket. Um, and then that would just send a signal down to a laptop. You just change the translation on the laptop and then you could show the subtitles. Problem is how to show them. So he des designed and built LED panels to put below the film screens just so that he could show films at his festival. So it was just crazy enough of an idea, but brilliant enough to actually pull it off. Um, and it was, you know, it's basically what became the super titles at the opera. Um, and he had, a, as I said, two patents. And the last year of the patent, uh, Dolby called us up and said, oh, you know, we're, we're interested in developing something like this. Um, but then they called back and said, we realize you're on the last year of the patent. We'll, we'll, we'll wait it out for six more months. Um, but uh, I basically grew up um, inserting LED lights into these panels. That was our sort of part-time job when we came home from school. Yeah, so long history. So then yeah. tell me about, um, obviously, you, uh, your father eventually sold that business, I believe, to Deluxe. And then uh, it's at one point you ended up... Um, uh, working for Deluxe, uh, what was your sort of your actual professional journey? Like you went to, I think, business school and then graduate school. Um, and then how did you end up in the, in the actually in the business? Because at one point you yeah, were running. So I, I, 
I, um, I loved film and I loved it, but I, I figured that I, you know, had enough of the cultural scene at that time. So I'm like, I want to go to NYU and work and study finance and internship, uh, get an internship in finance. So what did I, that's what I did. Um, I ended up uh, working first at BlackRock, then at Swiss Bank, and I was trading currency options as my first job out of school. And I was working um, in Philadelphia because there were only two places that traded them. Um, and, but I, so I was working the night shift because there was currency. So my first job was working midnight, to roughly 9 a.m. Uh, many times it was noon. Um, and, but it was a great experience because I realized how tough it was, how different it was. Um, and and I, I thought it wasn't what I thought that what initially thought it would be. And at the time, Wired Magazine uh, in 95 um, had just come out. The internet was really uh, starting to surface. They wrote an article on my dad, how he was doing subtitles for the Havana Film Festival out of Montreal and sending them over a 2400 baht uh, modem. And someone at Warner Brothers read this article and they were responsible for launching DVD. And they thought, oh, you know, this is an interesting innovation in localization. So they called him up and said, we'd love for you to come out for a meeting. He was in Italy at the time. He's like, look, I'm not gonna fly out to LA for a meeting. Would you mind going? So my sister was in LA at the time. So I was like, sure, I'll go. So I went out there knowing anything about DVD. It was really hard to research anything. There was really not that much. The internet was really, you know, uh, in its infancy. So I moved out and had a really interesting meeting where they were describing a disc, one disc that was gonna go all over the world with all the languages on it. And I was m making some quick math in my head. I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> you mean one, one uh, disc everywhere and no hardware to build? This is incredible. So I thought, you know what? Um, I, I said, well, cause we had developed a lot of software and I showed them the software we had developed and they were impressed. And I said, look, you know, how, how can we give it a shot? And the gentleman said, well, look, you know, we really need a company that's in LA. And so, uh, you know, I called my dad, we had a quick conversation. The next day we opened an office in the CNN, right next to the CNN building. The CNN building I thought was really cool in Hollywood, you, you know where that is, obviously. Yeah. Um, that was full. So we went to the one next to one, 64, 64 Sunset, and opened the office. And uh, then um, I quit my job and moved out to LA. Right. Yeah. So very quick. Uh, yeah. And then so eventually, um, Eventually, you uh, left that business, um, and and how did Svera come to pass? Like, what was sure. the the, the, so we, the sort of story of, of Svera? Absolutely. So we the company was Softitler. Uh, we so we started in '96. We um, grew it and sort of rode the DVD wave, and then there was a lot of consolidation happening um, at the time. So consolidation both on the client side but also on the vendor side um, including these sort of all-in inclusive contracts so for example dreamworks was one of our clients and you know i got a call saying you know we love your work and everything but we just did a five-year all-inclusive deal for technicolor and you know they had gotten you know a million dollar upfront bonus so the the economics were really changing and um I got a, a call from Rob Seidel at Deluxe and said, hey, you know, how would you guys come, you know, work with us? And he was laying out this vision about what Deluxe was going to become. And 
Um, and it, it was really interesting. So it was sort of the right time. Um, my parents were the majority shareholders. Um, and so we thought it was the right time. So I joined Deluxe and actually um, it was a great fit. Uh, they were, you know, really expanding quickly. And this idea of the, the compression in the supply chain um, made it such that it was really hard to have all these disparate services that then you had to coordinate, right? So bringing dolls all under one roof and then sort of standardizing them made a lot of sense. Um, and so it was, it was really fun and everything that sort of they had laid out actually happened. Um, and after I think it was seven, seven years or so at Deluxe, um, a couple of things happened. I was really interested in um, some of the new technologies that were coming up. And I had a really interesting experience where um, AWS just started. This is the, you know, the cloud offering by Amazon. And they invited us to sort of an executive symposium. This was very early on in the AWS offering. And uh, but it was just one of those things at the time I went up there and there was Chase Bank there. There was someone from Warner Brothers and there were other corporate clients from other industries. And uh, we spent two days and they literally went through exactly how they were changing things, including rewriting the, their motherboards for some of their servers to, to reduce the, the hops in order to transfer data. And it was an eye-opening experience. And Jeff Bezos actually showed up at one of the meetings and was explaining why this was so revolutionary. Um, and I was like, wow, this really feels like it's gonna change computing and the way things are done. Um, and, um, and, and so when I came back, I was like, you know, we should start thinking about this stuff. But when you're a large company that's put a lot of CapEx into infrastructure, it's really hard to be like, oh, you know, just kidding. You know, it's, it, it, it just, it's part of the DNA, but it's also, you know, it's security, it's the training and everything. And it took a big leap of faith to trust the cloud. Um, then Netflix came along and was like, oh, all our content is on AWS. So it's kind of like everything that I was like, I think this is the future of like, all your content is already on the cloud. Um, and the big, the big change was with that, having a browser that was strong enough to be able to basically run media and rich applications. Like that was the big sort of light bulb. And I'm like, this, there's a way that we can make this much more scalable um, and have much more visibility into our supply chain, um, much more redundancy and security. Um, and, um, and I was sort of trying to pitch this, but in an environment that, it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the innovation, innovator's dilemma, right? It's like, how can you innovate and, and cannibalize your own business um, for something new that hasn't been tested yet, even though, you know, directionally you think it's correct. Uh, there was an opportunity, again, uh, just a big need driven mostly at that time by Netflix to really scale localization. And I'm like, I can't believe this, but I'm gonna, let's go back to where the demand is and uh, fortunately, there had been people that worked with it left and we put a, a good team together. Um, and I was very lucky in finding some very good software developers that were, um, you know, fluent with the latest technology and interested in really sort of pushing the envelope with it. So that's how we started Sfera. And, you know, we called it a distributed workforce at the time. Now they call it smart working. <laughs> uh, but, but it was a lot of pivots. Um, and, and then, so that's how we ended up back to doing sort of 
subtitling. Yeah. So talk about you talk you talk about pivotal moments. What what were some pivotal moments? Like when what were some points in the history of Sfera where had you not had it not gone that way, you would have been done. There's always these there's always stories with entrepreneurs of like I was down, I was into my IRA or I was this or I was that, you know. What what were the moments for for Sfera? Yeah. Um there were there were several. I mean, the first two years were harder than I expected. Um, having been in the industry for a long time, I would, you know, I had a lot of relationships and call people and, and the feedback was all really positive, right? And, but they'd be like, oh, you're building something really cool. You should, you should partner with SDI or you should partner with Deluxe um, because they were the known entity, right? And they, they welcomed the innovation, but they weren't quite ready to, to put their, you know, risk it, if you will. Yeah. Um, so that was really hard. Um, and then I think when we decided to be a service provider as well as a platform, um, you know, that was a necessary step because I don't think we would have made it otherwise, even though I was really resistant to it because um, I didn't want to compete with our clients in a way, right? Because I, I wanted to, to, to license the platform um, but that was sort of a necessary thing we had to do. And we were also fortunate that there were enough new entrants in the market that were not sort of steep with legacy vendors. And, and the biggest, uh, looking back, the biggest opportunity are, you know, when, when you're doing a startup, it's um, timing always plays a huge factor. You need to have a good product and something that's different. But the combination of having the technology shift is literally what, what made it. The first time it was with DVD that allowed new entrants into the market. And the second time was with streaming. If streaming hadn't come along in year two and maybe it had come along in year three, we probably wouldn't have made it. And maybe if it had come along in year one, maybe we weren't ready for it. But the streaming market obviously revolutionized everything. Um, but it just opened up to a new type of client that said, we just want, we want data, we want visibility, we want scalability, how are you gonna deliver it? And, and we're willing to give it a shot because we just have so much demand, you know, doing this windowed cascade approach isn't gonna cut it. Um, so that, that was sort of the, the, the lucky uh, part of it, if you will. Um, and, then, and then later, uh, as we started growing, uh, I actually was telling my staff, I said, look, probably we're doing something, I think, truly innovative and relevant to the market. But maybe the market isn't right. It's maybe not a big enough market. We probably do need to find a partner. So we started having conversations with, with a lot of the uh, players in the market. And we got up to probably seven different conversations at different times. And for one reason or the other, those seven conversations didn't pan out. And this is, I think, a really important lesson that lots of times it's like you, you deal with rejection a lot and, and it's, it feels like it's continuous rejection. And it's really hard to stomach it, right? It just, and I think the hard part is that inevitably it transpires to other parts of your life. Like you just, you're depressed at the end of the day and you want to, you know, you know, I had a young family at the time. You want to really put a positive spin on it, but it's really hard. It takes a toll. So you end up like everyone deals with it differently, but internalizing it. And that is only something you can do for so long. Um, but then looking back, 
fortunately, we had all those rejections, right? Because it wasn't probably the right time or the right fit, or you're doing it out of desperation. Um, and then luckily, we were able to then get on our feet with volume and moving it up. So, so a lot of really hard lessons along the way. Um, so a lot of pivotal moments. Yeah, that actually gets to one of my next questions, which is, you know, um, you know, Svera has almost become part of the historical lore of localization, right? And like, it's like George Washington slept here, right? Everybody claims that <laughs> in New England, right? They're like, at some point, he slept in this house uh, during the Revolutionary War. And there's the people do the same thing with, with Svera. Everybody's like, well, we almost bought Svera. Everybody, yeah. uh, you know, we almost bought Svera. And uh, what, uh, what a, I'm sure you did have lots of conversations, and there probably were people that at least there were possibilities that they might acquire you what made the the deluxe deal the right way the right deal and yeah. in terms of timing and everything else and then and then also do you ever look back and say well actually um there might have been another year or two uh mm -hmm. you know that might have you know changed your valuation or whatever or do you feel like you kind of got it about right you know it was, yeah. it was the right right timing no, it's, it's a really good question and, and a difficult question to answer for the following reasons. Um, in hindsight, I'm glad that those, a lot of those other deals that happened mostly because of timing. The other thing is in a deal, let's say it's, there's a price on, on the acquisition. That's only one important variable, but lots of times it's really all the details afterwards, right? Like a sale agreement might be 380 pages. And a lot of it is, you know, most of them are, is there an earn out? What do they want to do with the team afterwards? What is the reason for the acquisition? Um, is it to take you off the market? Is it to, to grow you? Uh, is it, you know, what, what, what is it? And also if you're signing up for something that's mostly earn out, you know, and they're like, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, millions of millions for your company, but it's all earn out. Well, you kind of have that built in by just yeah. staying on it, right? And, and what's your lockup as far as you're, be, you're going to become an employee for how many years and, and what happens to the team? So there, there's really so many nuances and every deal is different. So it really reflects on what, what do you want to do at that time? With Deluxe, it was, it was a really interesting confluence of factors. So um, there's a new management team that came into Deluxe and they were just coming off a really successful year, like one of the best years in history. Um, John Wallace had come in the year before and he had hired a, a, a pretty big management team and, um, and there was renewed interest in investment um, from the parent company. And when we spoke about um, how, you know, how could Farah fit in, obviously I knew the localization team really well and I was excited about going back and working with a lot of the friends. I was, I, it was a way to see, I think that uh, what, you know, a validation of everything that we had worked for and being able to see it more as a, as a standard. And so it was a combination of, I think the right time, the right sort of transition for, for the team, the right, a, a broader application for the market. Um, and um, yeah, all of those things sort of like, it felt like it was the right, the right move. Do you think that you would have gotten into dubbing organically? Like in other words, at the time, Sphera was mostly a subtitling business, but do yeah. you think that you was dubbing on your roadmap? Uh, Cause obviously Deluxe has, has taken your uh, platform and, and I think used it largely to launch their dubbing platform mm -hmm. as well. Um, is that, was that 
already kind of on your horizon? It was. Um, we, um, my client was uh, Greg Taeb at Paramount. <laughs> right. And uh, obviously I had a lot of admiration for him. And I said, you know, one, one time I'm like, well, would you ever consider coming over and, you know, maybe we can build a, a dubbing business. And at the beginning, the expectation was not to like, oh, we're going to go out and revolutionize dubbing. It was really more about, can we build a platform that will help facilitate the, the management of it, whether it's contracts, whether it's casting modules, whether it's, you know, reviewing clips, whether it's just unifying and standardizing the reference materials, making it more secure. Um, and, and that was sort of, uh, we had started building an extension of the platform to do all of that. Um, and so I've always wanted to move into the dubbing, obviously being cognizant that it's a very, uh, it's a very different service. Um, but I, I did think that there was a lot of standardization and efficiencies that we could have brought into the market. Yeah. So obviously, I'm sure you probably still keep somewhat of an eye on the, on the industry and you've, you've no doubt seen a lot of consolidation in the last uh, few years. What does that say about, about the industry, both, you know, sort of like directionally what's, what's going on in the industry, but also um, all of this is done on somebody else's money, private equity money or whatever. So what does it say about the confidence that investors have in this sector, uh, in, you know, bro broadly? Yeah, well, I think there's one factor, which is we're sort of in an unprecedented um, expansionary monetary policy. <laughs> and what I mean by that, you know, there's been more money printed in the last two years than there has in the previous 200 years. And, th and that's been an upward trend where uh, the United States has been sort of in a, in a favorable position in the world where the dollar being a sort of a reserve currency, um, they've been able to print a lot of money without really effective interest rates. So what happens is that anything all the sort of any asset sort of there's a it gets inflated in price, especially if it has cash flow around it. So all of a sudden we've seen this across all industries. Everything's been a rich valuation. So I think smaller industries that have been relatively too small or or hard to understand have been sort of overlooked. And then I think investors have gotten more sophisticated, especially also like oh Netflix has done really well. Who are their vendors, right? Who are their, who are their, all the externality, all the players that might benefit from this rising tide, right? So that's one factor. On the other factor, I think that we really reached a point with um, OTT providers. This is really a global market now. You know, the, the, the client in Indonesia is worth just as much as the client in Italy, just as much as the client in, in Paris. And they need to receive the content all at once, all the same quality. Um, and uh, that, you know, mitigates um, piracy, it, it drives subscribers, it becomes, you know, more sticky content, um, and the numbers back it up, right? I mean, if you look at the valuation of, of Netflix and other players in the space. So I think it's a combination of, you know, a lot of capital in the market, a much more uneasy to understand with a proven model, um, and, um, and also the fact that the consolidation has also been driven by the fact that it's been a very fragmented market and there are efficiencies of bringing all everything under one roof. It's hard to sometimes execute those efficiencies, but in theory on a whiteboard, there's no doubt there's plenty of efficiencies to standardize how 
all this work is getting done. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that um, that's you know why a lot of investors are 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 looking at this market, and I think that that you know they've done well and they will continue to do well. Yeah. You you just recently saw uh, Bjorn Livergren, who I, I know you know as a a, a former competitor, uh, just get back into the industry uh, after having uh, um, left it from from BTI. Um, what do you think will be, you know, in his hypothesis is there's an appetite for smaller, more boutique type companies and that the industry's gotten too consolidated. Do you think that's true that people feel that way? Um, and, and, and do you, what, what are the headwinds that he's likely to have this time around uh, that he didn't maybe have when he had, you know, BTI growing? Right. Um, so, Bjorn is obviously a smart guy and has done well. So I, I, I think that he's probably has a good plan. Um, I think that, you know, the consolidation of vendors has always been a pendulum swing, like, you know, and I've been on both sides of that. And, and depending on what side, it's either like, look, you really want the boutique, you know, mom and pop shop, like we live and breathe your business and whatever. If you're on the big, on bigger side, it's like, oh, look at, you know, we have a much more sophisticated security, all the services one choke to throw it all, you know, and they both make sense, by the way. At the end of the day, it's, it has to be flawless execution, really good value. And I think you can, there's going to be pendulum swings, but I think, um, you know, moral, you know, again, whoever can deliver will, will do well. I think there's bigger opportunities in the market now that we've seen. Um, we talked about this a little bit, but um there's different models that are coming out of the market right now, more decentralized models. And what I mean by that is where a lot of the participants in the business in that network are incentivized differently and um, have a vote or, or a voice in the governance of that network and share incentive-wise in that network. So you can imagine if you have a pool of, of translators all over the world or voice artists or whatever it could be in the industry, but they have you know, more skin in the game, they can decide. And a lot of it is built on open source software and those, and those participants share in it. Um, I think that's a really interesting area to look at. And I think it's kind of like a tidal wave that will move much faster than we've seen. And we're already seeing it sort of starting to disrupt other industries. So this, this industry I think is kind of, has a lot of the characteristics that could be affected by that. And, um, and I think that's going to be an interesting development to watch. Yeah. So last question, See, seeing this um, uh, possibility for disruption on the horizon, seeing Bjorn come back into the industry, does it ever, uh, do you ever hear the call of the sirens? Do you ever think, oh, maybe I need to come back into this, into this space or, or not so much? That, that is a hard question because uh, I, 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 being able to unplug a little bit, I'm, I, I always think like, that's a crazy industry. I'm not going back. <laughs> but then inevitably, you, you think about it a lot. And, you know, what would you do differently? Or what would be cool to do now? And I think that's just a uh, professional deformation or something. You're just like, oh, man, this would be cool to apply. So I don't know. It's hard. I mean, if I went back full time, um, it would be it would have to do to be something sort of different and exciting with a different spin on it. Um, and, um, but it'd be hard to just go back to just do it sort of the same way. Yeah. 
Morgan, thank you so much for, uh, for, for talking with us. Uh, really great stuff. And uh, I hope to see you soon in, in either in Italy or Los Angeles, whichever, uh, whichever uh, f fortune allows us to do. So. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Chris. All right, take care. You've been listening to Telling Stories from the Clubhouse. Join us next week as we discuss more topics and tales about sharing stories with the world.